so I have seen them uh, skimming the ground, plowing into killdeer uh, many times. I've seen them take flickers off fence posts. I've seen them fly into flocks of cowbirds like a merlin, where it was indistinguishable from a merlin, except you knew it was a kestrel because you watched it fly off the pole and, and go after them. Um, I have seen them uh, chase doves uh, and you know pound doves on the ground, take doves off the wire. Uh, I've seen them catch house sparrows, uh, field sparrows, uh, in in ways that made it obvious a that it was you know experienced at doing it and be capable of doing it and see it was gonna catch it hello everyone welcome back for another fun-filled falconry podcast brought to you by the falconry fund fun information found in this podcast including how to donate fund activities podcast information including disclaimers and contact info can also be found on the website at www.falconryfund.org And this episode largely covers uh, one of the little guys, particularly the American Kestrel, and what they can bring to the sport, how much fun they can be, and also, unfortunately, how sad it can be to fly these little guys sometimes. I personally um, am not afraid to admit that I have a very large bias towards these little birds, and um, I've had a lot of fun flying a couple of Kestrels in my short falconry career thus far. And that being said, I started off like many others by reading American Kestrels and Modern Falconry, and I still to this day credit that book for helping me along um, towards my American Kestrel success. And after reading that book and subsequently trapping my first Kestrel, I was able to get in touch with Matt on Facebook, and he was nice enough to give me some of his time, give me some pointers, and just give me some general advice on things, and I'll be forever grateful, personally, to him for that. And over the past couple years, I had really hoped that I might get the opportunity to meet him face-to-face, talk shop, discuss some of the other aspects of falconry, and here we are. So without further ado, I give you all Matt Molinex. Three, two, one. What's up, Matt? Hey, John. Good to see you. Welcome. Welcome to the Mullinex home. Thank you. Thank you for having me. For everybody that hasn't heard me, I'm John Munyer, and uh, I am here down in uh, Baton Rouge with uh, Matt Mullinex, and uh, we're just going to talk about some random stuff, kestrels, and what were we talking about just a, a little bit ago? Um, I think we, we kind of left off a conversation. Well, we are talking about uh, sort of dis- disqualifiers for new falconers. Oh, yes, that's um, right. You know, and the what I feel like is a responsibility to uh, to sponsor someone and, you know, where that responsibility ends, where their responsibility picks up. And, right. And uh, sort of all around the idea that that this is a rare sport where you've got one citizen who's basically a gatekeeper uh, to, to, to your entire sport. And, you know, how, how would you feel had somebody disqualified you based on you know, their perceived uh, impression about what kind of falconer you would be. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. right. No, I remember that now. Yeah, um, it's, I think that um, obviously there's a lot of subjective views on that. And uh, overall, just, I think that what people look for in prospective um, apprentices and people that come looking for uh, involvement in the sport, I think, you know, it varies from, from person to person, but go ahead and share just what, what, what kind of things do you look at whenever, um, someone approaches you? Well, I mean, the, 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 the first great leap is to show up. 
Um, and that, you know, that, that almost never happens. So you, you, you know, you, I was telling you about the sort of tiers of, of, of approach. Right. And, uh, and the first tier is, you know, maybe they were interested in falconry and, uh, you ran into them at a party and they say, you know, Hey, I've always wanted to do that. I can't believe that you do that. That's, you know, everybody has that experience once a week. Um, but that guy or gal, you probably never hear from again. You right. run it, you run into them again at another party next year. They say, Oh yeah, I've been meaning to get back with you on that. And, uh, you know, then another tier might be, look, I definitely want to go hunting with you. Uh, you know, what, what are the dates? When can I, you know, show up and will you call me to go and no, I will not, I will not, I will not call you. I will <laughs> tell you that I'm hunting four days a week and you can show up at X. And, uh, and anyway, several tiers down the line is the person who shows up. And if it's summertime, they show up in the porch and we, you know, take a tour of the hawk and, um, and, uh, you know, they, they go through their little spiel, which they had set up. And that's always interesting to hear, you sure. know, how, like, how long have they been interested in it? Why haven't they picked it up? And, um, why did you call me? <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> why like, are what you did here? you, yeah. And I, you know, and I, at, at that point, I don't try to interrogate them so much as just, you know, l- let them speak. And because it, it's going to be self-evident pretty soon sure you know, because the next tier you know after showing up at the house or showing up you know uh you know amazingly if they show up to the field and they're not wearing shorts and flip-flops <laughs> um and they actually go for a hunt you know that's at that point you're 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 talking to a pretty real person at that you know if they're if they're showing up to hunt with you um but even showing up at the house to to kind of get the tour and look at your books and that's that's pretty indicative but it would not i would say be um a surprise to have you know never hear from that person again too which has also happened so sure you know at the end of the day uh i wait for the uh wildlife and fisheries to call me and say hey look so and so says that he has met with you and and he is interested in taking his test next tuesday you know are you really interested in sponsoring him and at that point you know i, I say well yes if he's you know if he's jumped through these hoops um and and i guess this is the point of the conversation we're like well no there was some hugely disqualifying factor with this person mm. and um and for me you know it would be difficult to like i've got a pretty high bar for that uh it, mainly because um so so when i got out of school uh, my first job was working for the florida fishing game and 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 in our uh office uh, our office the non-game office uh, was the one that uh, permitted falconers and so we were privy to um to, to really what happens on the on the regulatory end uh, when you've got a bunch of people who are sort of gatekeepers to other people. And uh, and we had some instances where uh, there were sort of a, a race issue or a gender issue um, where people were being blackballed for, for being the wrong race or the wrong gender, uh, some sexual harassment. Uh, I mean, these are things that you think, well, well, well people are terrible. Right. Uh, and we know people are going to be terrible and people are always going to be terrible. But here's the thing these terrible people will keep you from being a falconer. Mm. Um, and, and we have this unique situation in this weird regulatory framework that we came up with as falconers, you know, that, that you need a sponsor and that, uh, and that, you know, we force you to do this. Well, then that puts the onus on us as, as experienced falconers, as permanent falconers to have a very high bar for disqualification, right. in my and, opinion. And not, and not drop the ball. And know, not and, drop the ball. Yeah. Right. right. And, and not disqualify people even if you, you know, even if you have personal biases, right, and we all do, um, you have to set your own bar higher, um, because, and, and this is, the, so that's, so the, so the sort of regulatory rationale is, 
is the first reason why I, I try to set the bar pretty high for myself. And the, the second is that if you had seen me, you know, at 14, um, <laughs> when I was, you know, presented to my, my prospective sponsor, um, it's a scenario that none of us would really want to, you know, look back at and say, hey, look, that's, you know, I can really tell that guy's going to be a great falconer. Right. And so, uh, so we come in all shapes and sizes. Uh, we come at falconry, you know, late in life or early in life. We come at falconry uh, in personal circumstances of, of say, uh, you know, financial stability or, or education or, or, or marital status or, uh, or living, you know, status. And, um, you know, where we live, do we live in a city? Is it disqualifying to live in a city? Well, I mean, it should be disqualifying if you live in the middle of a city and you, you never can go hawking. But that's a discussion that you can have with the, with the prospective falconer and say, mm-hmm. hey, look, I mean, you know, how, how serious are you about this? Do you want to move? Um, but that, that aside, I, I set the bar for disqualification high because, because you never know, uh, about other people. I mean, who am I to judge, uh, what falconry, uh, might be for you and it might save your life. And I don't say that lightly because I think there isn't a falconer who has been through a full season and enjoyed it and had a bond with the hawk and, 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 and learned something about themselves and, and have realized that they are a falconer. You know, no matter what anybody says about me, I'm a falconer. Sure. And, and I cannot take that away from somebody. I can't take the potential for that away from somebody. Right. And, and ultimately, um, you also have to remember that, you know, you're a human being, you have your own faults, you have your own sets of quirks exactly. and everything too. Exactly. Judge yourself first before everybody else. And I mean, relationships like that work, work both ways. I know I, I told you this story where, uh, first time I went out with, with the group of guys that you know, in our Southern Indiana crew that went hunting with, I, I wanted to test them a little bit just to see, you know, just, just, just how judgmental or jerks they could be or whatever. <laughs> it turns out you know, we're all a, a, a fun group of jerks, I guess. But, uh, you know, I showed up with motorcycle chaps in a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle beanie on and, and stuff just, just to see what the reaction would be. Because I mean, I, I, I knew obviously, you know, knowing nothing, you go in you're still trying to feel your way and stuff. What's kosher, what's not. Right. But obviously I knew that showing up and stuff like that would be, you know, a little, you know, obviously not, it wouldn't fly. I just want to see what the reaction would be, see how welcoming they'd still be. Cause obviously a large part, at least, you know, just from what I've seen and a large part of your, your success in, in this sport is determined by who you learn from, right. who, who you, who you get out with. If you're not going to have a good experience doing it, why do it? And, you know, if, if you're not, if you're not going to have fun with the group of guys that you're going to be hunting with most of the time, part of the fun in this sport is, is the camaraderie and the relationships you form and stuff. And if those aren't going to be positive and you can't have some, you know, fun with, with, with a group, with a group of guys and take themselves too seriously, or they're just elitist or whatever the case may be, what's the point? Right. You know, you might as well just, just not even bother because it's, you know, nobody wants to, wants to just sit there and, and, and be judged the whole time or right. be, or be treated like crap, you know? Right. So, right. Right. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I do agree with you though. I mean, for, for sure. It's, um, you know, I, I'm not very far removed even just from, from my first year apprenticeship and stuff too. And, and, um, you know, I, I feel fortunate that the group of guys that I got in with initially were, were, were a good group of guys to learn from. They're willing to share their knowledge. And it's unfortunate when some people aren't willing to, you know, or a little standoffish about you know sharing their knowledge and stuff, and I know that's that's one of the reasons I was I was appreciative the first time I contacted you about um, you know the first Kestrel I flew and just getting some general um, 
you know, opinions or uh, just 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 general suggestions and, and stuff. I mean, it's, it's refreshing whenever, you know, people that even, you know, wrote the book on a certain topic or whatever are willing to, you know, put that time out there, you know, to, to help people that aren't as, as, as experienced. And I think it's cool whenever people have the foresight to know that you just, you never know what someone's going to turn into or, or someone's right. going to evolve into. Right. Um, and you, and, and that, and that jury is out a long time. Sure. Right. So, mm-hmm. um, so I, you know, we, we, everybody watches everybody in the sport and, um, and everybody I think is somewhat judgmental, not only about themselves, but about, you know, about, uh, about their contemporaries. Um, you, as you grow in the sports, you judge the people that you learned from, you know, as you, as you think you start to learn some of what they knew and what they were teaching you. And maybe you think you surpass it in some ways. Um, that so you you know you have this this sort of constant lifetime experience of appraisal of everybody else in the sport and I, th- sure. I think that's natural I, th- I think that's um, I think it's inevitable because uh, you spend a lot of time thinking about falconry you spend a lot of time doing falconry it's um, it's a sport where um, where a lot of people their own men so to speak and their own women and they uh, they have you know built themselves to a considerable degree not to underestimate. Uh, how much you learn from other people or how important it is to have a group. Sure. But you do a lot of this on your own and you do a lot of this by yourself um, alone in the field, you know, without anybody ever seeing it. And, and so, so you become your own judge. And, um, and I think that's another good reason to sort of pause and, and make sure that your own judgment of another person doesn't extend too far beyond how much they have judged themselves or how much they have to, to grow. And so, um, so somebody calls and, 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 uh, you know, it's almost certainly somebody I've never heard of or had never met or n- not even a Facebook friend or they, you know, say, Hey, look, this is so-and-so I, I, I live in this state. I've, I've got your book. Um, uh, you know, I have a Kestrel. I'm, uh, you know, I'm, I'm doing pretty well with it or I'm doing terrible with it. Or I, you know, like you never know, like I just, I would sit there and wait and, and hear what the story is. Right. And, um, and it's, you know, I find it's, those stories f- fall in two or three different uh, buckets, generally, mm. but uh, but you don't know you don't know what you're going to hear until you, until you hear it. And you know this is a sport, and, and and so flying kestrels, I think, is a good example of this. It's not rocket science, but it is a science. Sure. And if you get the right ones, and you you know you kind of know what you're doing going into it, then you uh, then you can succeed. Mm-hmm. And so so this is one where even if you're failing. And I and I and I now sort of extend this to, to all calls I would get. I mean, I, I I have a pretty high threshold here too. Like I, you you got to be sucking pretty bad, um, <laughs> because you know if you've made a call, if you've reached out to another falconer to say, hey, look, I, I need help. You yeah. there's a lot of egos in this sport. There's a lot of egos in this sport. Um, we have all screwed up. Uh, you know, not only more than we wanted to, uh, mm-hmm. which was once. Uh, yeah. or nuns. Right. <laughs> uh, but, but we have screwed up more than we have told anybody. We have screwed up more than we have written about. We have screwed up more than, you know, we would want anybody to know. Sure. And, um, and so everybody, you know, sort of carries that, that with them and you have to carry that with you when you talk to another falconer. Um, so, uh, you know, m- m- my feeling about this is not, um, you know, s- s- stemming from some wellspring of, of, you know, good faith in people. I mean, I've met some people who, who, who turned out to be terrible falconers who turned out to be terrible people. Sure. Um, and that happens. Uh, but I think the sport does not attract terrible people in general. The sport attracts interesting people who have their eyes open, who are uh, interested in wildlife and being outdoors. It, it, it takes a unique um, group of personalities to 
to to want to do this to themselves, <laughs> right? Right. I mean, to 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 be willing to um to take on the the unique challenges and, and responsibilities that that come with you know, uh, these these type of birds. It, it's and for the most part, yeah, I hundred percent agree. It's it's a definitely um a, an interesting group of uh, of people. Uh, right. We we are a very unique demographic. Yep. Yeah, and it uh, it's funny when you go to a, say you go to a field meet, an AFA meet, for example, um, and 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 this is this has changed over the years. Uh, the first meet I went to was almost all men uh, in in their middle age, um, and you know the, the lights were off. It was a you know it looked more like a like a drug convention than you know than <laughs> than a, than a, a sportsman's convention. Uh, you know now any any year you go, it's it's you know it's, it seems almost fifty fifty male and female. It's a lot of young people. Um, it's much more vibrant. The lights are generally on. You know, the venues are better, uh, and um, and it's a much more sort of diverse experience. But even even back in the day, you could not have looked at any one person and really known uh, until you talked to them what their background was, where they came from, what what job they had, if any. What you know, um, and and we all sort of come from all walks of life. The one unifying feature being with this sort of fascination and. Um, you know, as Bodio says, rage, rage for Falcons. Yeah, affliction. Right. right. Affliction. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's uh, it, it's really hard to explain to someone that doesn't do it and doesn't understand. But generally speaking, even someone that even doesn't have any interest in the sport or getting into it or whatever, if they actually give a little bit of time to it, come and check it out and stuff, they at least get it a little bit. I think, and I think that's valuable. And this yeah. is something that I, I've sort of... Um, grown in my opinion about this over the years um there was a there was a time you know in the first you know seven to ten years of my practice where i you know knew everything about falconry and was and could tell you you know everything that i know um i was i was i was pretty sure that that nobody should get in that would ever get out right right that you know that like that by definition if you you know if you released your first red tail and you never got another one you should not have been a falconer and i <laughs> and and i am totally wrong about that i was wrong then um i think anybody who believes that's wrong now i think um i think if you have subjected yourself to this discipline if you have subjected yourself to um to an opportunity where you had to learn something, where you had to, uh, you know, be polite to a bird, where you had to put yourself in a, you know, in, in a subordinate position, where you had to, you know, just get get out of your own head, uh, fix your schedule, uh, do something different, and have a hands-on experience with wildlife, which is super rare, you know, today. So it used to be not so rare, yeah, right? Those, I mean, those relationships typically don't exist. They typically do not exist, yeah. and when we have this wonderful format that we can that we can exploit to to, to have that experience, which which I think is by itself important and by itself ennobling. And if it only extends to a season or two and the person, you know, releases a bird and says, hey, you know, or loses the bird, says, oh, they're just not for me, that person is changed. Yeah. That person will never be the same. That person will always have trained a hawk. And that is, that's a special thing. Well, and, and even the people that, that think they might be interested but then see it and then realize that it, it, there's no way they can meet those requirements – or even a step further, people that don't even like hawks. I mean, like there's, I've heard stories of guys that back in the day would just love to shoot red tails. They just get rid of right. them. They're a nuisance, whatever. Anytime they see one, they shoot one. Well, they, they, they hook up with a falconer. They, they see him hunt, and all of a sudden they have a newfound respect, and I'll, I'll never shoot one of those ever again. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it's, it's, 
it's just it's interesting how quickly this sport in general can 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 change the minds of of so many people if they're willing you know, if, right. if they're if they're willing to to be right. open minded and check it out and right. I mean right. to even just check it out there's there's still a lot of hoops to even jump through and a lot of right. people are turned off by just the entry level amount of work and and everything but for the people that you know I do, I do agree wholeheartedly you know for anybody that's that's even just willing to, to take that just that initial just that tiny step forward there there's very few people that aren't at least I don't know, they haven't at least um, found some kind of new appreciation for, for something, right, you know, re- right. regarding nature or wildlife. And so all that being said, um, just to kind of wrap up that final thought, what what's if, if there was just one simple thing for all the prospective um, apprentices or, you know, people thinking about getting into it, I mean, coming from your your one point of view, I mean, just if there's just one thing more more important than any others telling somebody that wants to get into it, what, what, what would you tell them? Well, it, Usually the, the main stopping point is, is, is time of availability. Um, and, you know, and as a falconer, you, you know, it, it doesn't take a lot of time, but it takes a regular uh, application of a small amount of time, uh, which, which means that you can't work till five in, in during the hunting season. You, you, you know, you, you have to figure out some other way to do that. Um, so, so there's time availability, which if, if, if a person's locked into a type of job that they cannot change or will not change, or, or is not going to you know be changed for them in the near future, that's a big stumbling block. Uh, the, the next one is related to it, and that's where where do you go, and um, and if you like, so this is where where a prospective falconer and I would talk a little bit about you know how, you know do do you hunt do you what do you hunt where do you hunt um, you know who do you know that has hunting land are you willing to uh, to, you know, park at the Seven Eleven and hunt the empty lot right next to the Seven Eleven. Like, are you, like, are, like, are you aware of, of where you would go? And, um, and then I, I make it clear to them that you need, you need a dozen places. You need 15 places, 20, 25 places where you could go at a moment's notice mm-hmm. and just show up without telling anybody, uh, and, and park and then go hunt. And you need to do that three or four days a week at a minimum. Mm-hmm. And 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 the, the you know the sun has to be up, right? Uh, I mean, you can go in the evening, but it, the, you, you have to be able yeah. to see. I mean, there's, um, there's, I mean, there's 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 guys that that I hunt with regularly and and know that that are able to make um, you know, pretty successful birds by mainly doing it on the weekends and stuff like that. But the thing is, though, is is whenever it's time for them to do it, like that's that's all that it is, and. You know, I mean, initially, I do agree, though, if for, for someone that's just getting in and stuff, they at least need to realize that that is the time equipment. It's, it's, it's the time commitment they, they should be expected to do and strive for. You know, for well, sure. so right. So, to your point, um, there's certainly a way to practice falconry that can be done on the weekends and successfully. So I, I fly a male Harris Hawk and I, I could fly one day a week. I could fly two days a month. Sure, and yeah. and catch as many you know uh, as I would on a regular hunt, uh, hunting four days a week pr- mm-hmm. probably. Um, but this is after thirty five years, uh, and and knowing this place where we live, Baton Rouge, very well, and knowing how far I have to drive and where I have to yeah. go and what the habitat looks like and what kind of quarry. Yeah. If I'm if I'm a new falconer starting out, and I and I had an apprentice this last year, um, I would challenge you uh, a, a little bit on that. I don't think it would have been possible to to. To just have him go on a weekend and, sure. and get no, enough I, hours in, you well, know, and to I, and figure I, it out. And I agree. I should add the caveat to that 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 um you know a lot of those guys are more experienced. They know how to right. get the most you know juice out of the squeeze, right. so to speak. Right. And I'm not I'm not I'm not 
you know, making a value judgment about about what's the right amount of time, sure. uh, you know, to be a good falconer. Like this yeah. is uh, this was, although you know, at that point in my life when I was telling everybody their own business, uh, I was <laughs> I was I was telling people, you know, oh, you should definitely hunt every day because I guess what I was hunting every day. Right. I had no wife, no kids. Um, I, you know, I had, a, I was either in school or, or I had a job where I, you know, like, like the four other falconers in my office, uh, we all brought our hawks to work and mm-hmm. left right after. So, yeah, and unfortunately not everybody has not jobs everybody where they can bring their that. birds to work. That's right. That's right. <laughs> but no, I mean, and that's, and that's why I wanted to, to start off this conversation with this line of thought because, you know, everybody's, um, expectations and everybody's views of, of what they, especially a sponsor to an apprentice, what what their expect expectations were and what their um, requirements are of someone um, mainly to be willing to even sacrifice their own time and giving up their own time away from everything that they do. You know, it's, it's all different. I mean, from, from person to person. Hey everyone, hope you've been enjoying listening to another episode of the Falconry Fund podcast. Just as a reminder, the Falconry Fund is an organization that's dedicated to preserving and protecting the art of falconry in North America and abroad, and any contribution that you make to the Falconry Fund will further preserve and continue the tradition and legacy of the sport for those individuals, both past, present, and future, that have dedicated themselves to its lifestyle and practice, as well as bringing you future content. The other cool thing about the Falconry Fund is it's a nonprofit corporation under the IRS, so any contribution that you make is also deductible towards your taxes. So, if you have any other questions regarding the deductibility of your contribution or the tax exempt purpose of the Falconry Fund, please contact its president, Alan K. Ayers, CPA, at 410-310-2733. Thank you. everyone hope you enjoyed the first half of the podcast and if you did i know you're gonna love the second half because we get into a couple of juicy topics here one of which includes one of the more age-old controversial debates in falconry particularly regarding kestrels so all that being said let's jump right back into it it's just amazing how, how many different views you know points of view that everybody has expectations standards and, um, you know, kind of branching from that, I mean, um, I guess, I guess this would be a good time to just ask the question, uh, why Kestrels? Why, what, what got you hooked on Kestrels to begin with? What, in, what inspired you or what motivated you to write a book about the subject and what was the, the why? <laughs> uh, well, I mean, so you, you know, uh, from your experience, how, how great Kestrels are. And so there's a, um, you know, there's a little bit of circular reasoning there, whether you, you uh, get into them because they're great. Um, uh, but there's a point in, in your falconry career where you don't know that. And and that point for me uh, was, was fairly early. So I, although I live in Baton Rouge now, I, I have been coming to Southeast Louisiana uh, since I was an apprentice, mm-hmm. uh, you know, a teenager coming from Georgia with my sponsor who knew some falconers here. And, and, and the first field meet I came to, and I, so I was 15 or 16 years old, there were several kestrels there uh, at the field meet, and these are uh, these guys are no nonsense falconers down mm-hmm. here. And and if anybody knows any reputation of anybody from South Louisiana, um, <laughs> then uh, then you know they know um, they 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 go out, they expect to kill stuff, they 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 kill a lot of stuff uh, over a weekend. We would we would have field meets where uh, where we'd catch fifty rabbits and you know twenty five squirrels, and this is. You know, this has been a fairly small area, like between three or four streets, literally. So, um, so these guys were not given to uh, messing around or, or playing with hawks that didn't hunt. And here they were with kestrels. And um, 
and as I wrote about in the opening of the book, uh, that literally happened. I overheard them uh, speaking. Well, what what the Kestrel catch today? And uh, and thinking it must be a joke. There, you know, like there there really is no answer to that question that is not you know that doesn't end in a joke. Right. And it was like uh, two starlings and a grackle or something. I mean, it was uh, it was a real deal. It was multiple birds and. Um, and then, of course, you go out with somebody and you see, and, and the, the method at that, at that point uh, we're all familiar with now is uh, flying starlings out the window. Mm. Uh, super successful kestrel, uh, American kestrel, very good at it, uh, being you know, an ambush predator and, and smart and uh, tough and, uh, and, and gutsy mm. um, and uh, you know, knowing a good thing when it sees it. So, so is, that, this, is, this, is this a part where we should chime in and say, uh, check your check your local state's uh, rules and, and regulations? Yes, right. So, uh, <laughs> so we're talking about starlings, which are introduced species, and uh, you know you're generally not prohibited to to be uh, to be attacked in any by any means, yeah, uh, along with house sparrows. Yes, along with house sparrows, yeah. and on uh, private properties. Yes, where you have permission. Right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, so all of now that we covered that. Right. All of that uh, being true. Um, then the appeal of a kestrel, uh, which I mean, they're naturally appealing birds. I think anybody who doesn't like the idea of a oh, kestrel, right? Um, and uh, it's got something wrong with it. They're beautiful. beautiful they, birds. Uh, and once you get to know them, of course, they've got great little personalities in there. Uh, you know, they're uh, although it's probably not PC to say they're they're there. They are the easiest of the small hawks to to, to keep to to hunt with, to fly, to maintain, to feed. They, they're the red tail of the, of the small hawks. Mm -hmm. Um, so, so even, you know, a, a well sort of, and at this point I was, uh, you know, I was experienced, uh, Harris Hawker, red tail person would catch game regularly. Um, I had the sort of basics of, you know, mechanics. Uh, I, I needed a, um, a lot of, uh, instruction on small hawk management. And I got that from Tom and Jen at the time they were breeding kestrels hmm. and, uh, they yes, had Tom and Jen Colson. Tom and Jen Colson. Yeah. Uh, they were then in new Orleans there. They're in Pearl river now, a nearby city in Louisiana. Uh, but they were breeding kestrels at the time. And my first kestrel was actually a captive bred, uh, kestrel, uh, from them. And, um, <laughs> And I think my second one too. And I and I will admit I did not uh, break any records with the first one. A little male, I think I caught uh, seventeen sparrows with it, mm -hmm. but it screamed, uh, which was which was not not. <laughs> you know, if you if you if you've tried to hunt with a screaming kestrel, you can uh, see why it, it's not uh, not terribly successful. Anytime you're just in the in the same room in general oh, with a screaming with, kestrel, or a screaming hawk of any yeah, right, right, exactly. Yeah. But, but um, kestrels, they have this. Uh, they're definitely. Um, a little bit more uh, uh, high pitched and right and just and, uh, and a little bit more relentless yeah. <laughs> than some, um, yeah, uh, you know, uh, fingernails on the chalkboard oh, yeah. uh, oh, level. It's, uh, it's, it's terrible. Anyway, <laughs> but uh, but the, the second one also captive bred, and and I and 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 I have to say I don't really recommend that that you go this route. Uh, you know, and, and I would not recommend an IS to anybody. Uh, yeah, I would recommend a passage bird to everybody, mm. and, and 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 would come to that conclusion eventually myself in mm. my own practice of falconry but so not not to interrupt but just just while you just mentioned that just go ahead and just expound on that just a little bit further because that that's the biggest debate that i always see right and right I, and, and, I, I, and i have the same debate with people too right. and it is what it is i, I know, get but, that and here's the here's how i here's how i deconstruct the theory the theory is kestrels are not supposed to catch game they really, we don't really believe that they, that they're an actual real hawk. And so it makes sense that you need an IS, right? Because you have to wet it to birds, right? Mm -hmm. Because otherwise it would eat bugs and worms. And let me tell you, there's not a kestrel on the 
planet that would not eat bugs and worms. Uh, seen, it know, seen it many times. Seen it many times. You have caught hunts. a starling and then caught a bug <laughs> and then caught two starlings and caught a worm. Yep. It's just like a Harris hawk. Uh, you know, you'll catch three rabbits and a cotton rat and it'll mm-hmm. catch every cotton rat every time. And, and, and so kestrels are, are no different. Are are sort of traditional, and I think this is changing a lot. I think this is, you know, l- largely has changed now. Um, is different now than it was when I was starting. Um, the expectation now is that they hunt, but there is still this lingering concept of you know you have to wet it to something, and and this is I think without any basis at all in actual fact. Mm. Um, and it turns out that the fastest way to catch is to get a passage bird, which has, by the time you have it, probably already killed several, probably knows how to kill birds. Mm. Uh, and if, and if, and if it doesn't know how to kill a bird, it has been hungry before. Right. Uh, and has had to feed itself in one way <laughs> exactly. or another. Um, and has learned that, Hey, look, you give me an easy slip. I'm, I'm going to go for it. Opportunistic to, right. to the max. Right. And it, and, it, and, and this, and this sort of basic idea that it has fed itself, right? Like it has never looked to a person to, to feed it. And so it's already naturally outwardly looking, uh, and, and of course, you know, a lot of them, I believe, uh, regularly catch birds, uh, by the time you get them a haggard bird, which, um, you know, which is legal, mm-hmm. um, uh, everything we know about why you shouldn't take haggard birds probably applies to kestrels also, you know, philosophically, uh, the, the fact that they're difficult to determine whether it's a haggard or kestrel, I mean, or a passage bird is, uh, plays into it. Um, I would say that, uh, there is not a haggard kestrel out there that is not an expert bird hawk. Uh, they, they are, um, and, and when I say that, you know, realizing that that immediately puts it into the, uh, you know, comparison of sharp hawk, uh, Merlin, uh, Cooper's hawk, you know, you say it's an expert bird hawk, right? Mm-hmm. Um, then that it's a pretty high bar yeah, to you, meet. You probably just caused a, a few people to swerve off the road right. and into an embankment. You right, know, spit so. the coffee out. <laughs> yeah. um, and here's, let me, exp- so let me explain what that means. And that would be in the context of a, say a haggard, uh, kestrel. Of, of either of either sex, but but let's say a haggard female, um, and then I'll tell you what I have seen. Uh, so I have seen them uh, skimming the ground, plowing into killdeer uh, many times. I've seen them take flickers off fence posts. I've seen them fly into flocks of cowbirds like a merlin, where it was indistinguishable from a merlin, except you knew it was a kestrel because you watched it fly off the pole and and go after him. Right. Um, I have seen them uh, chase doves uh, and you know pound doves on the ground, take doves off the wire. Uh, I've seen them catch house sparrows, uh, field sparrows, uh, in, in ways that made it obvious, A, that it was, you know, experienced at doing it and B, capable of doing it and C, it was going to catch it. Right. Right. So. It was determined. It yeah, was, it was determined to yeah. catch it. And, 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 and that has a look that is unmistakable. Yeah, it's and, confidence. Uh, it's, right. It's confidence and it's, uh, you know, it's a predator doing its thing. So. So the, and, and I'm not like the first to observe that. That's in North American falconry and hunting hawks. I mean, that's way back when, when, when their expectation of a train caster was basically zero. Mm-hmm. Um, you had the authors saying, hey, look, the wild kestrels, well, they, they do catch birds and they catch birds larger than themselves. Um, and so something is happening. And, uh, and all I needed to see was to, to know that an actual real falconer, somebody I might admire and want to be like, was not you know kidding when they said they had a kestrel that caught game. And uh, so at any rate, as it happened, my my second one, uh, captive bred female, Sally, uh, caught caught lots and lots of birds. And she was the one that really, um, really gave me my first taste of of what they can do. And this was not all car hawking. This is, uh, you know, flying big flocks of uh, blackbirds. Mm -hmm. This is, um, we used to have a place uh, in, I was in uh, Valdosta, Georgia at the time when I had her. And and 
uh, we would go to a mall uh, in the evenings when the birds were coming in to roost. And I would release her from the car uh, in the parking lot, and she would fly the opposite direction. She would fly over the roof of the mall and disappear (laughs) at full speed. Wow. And then you give her like four or five beats, she'd come from the opposite direction of the trees and just explode into the trees and pull one out of the tree or pull one uh, out of the air as it was coming down. Wow. Um, That'd be crazy. And that's a, this is, this is a, uh, this is an IS bird, a captive bred bird. I got her as uh, you know, hard penned and already raised. So it was, you know, basically like training a passage hawk, but she, she had no experience um, except the experience that she got with me, which was a lot. Um, And she, you know, she showed me a lot, but, but the, but, you know, the next leap is to trap a passage bird. And then you realize, well, you know, all of the learning curve that you had to go through with that hawk, you don't go through with the passage bird. And they generally, they just like on day one, you get their weight right. And it's, you know, it comes to you when, when you call it, you could, you could, you know, slip it on something and it would chase. Not to mention all the, the work that's involved with, um, the, the 24 seven care of an IS and, uh, the, the yeah, feeding. Right. And they just, you don't get that. You don't, yeah. That's that's not a return on investment that you get back. No, um, not in, not in with Kestrel. Maybe you know. So there's a there's a great um, there's a great argument to be made for a sharp shin hawk for an IS sharp shin hawk. That that I think is clear. Sure. Uh, you know, it's a it's a benefit uh, from a falconry standpoint. It, it is zero benefit uh, with a Kestrel from a falconry yeah. standpoint. Zero. Yeah. And in fact, it's a detriment. And so uh, so I like I'm unambiguous about that about that question. I have no yep. there's no no doubt in my mind that you should not pull up a, a, a Kestrel. Uh, out of the nest because there's no not because it's immoral but it, it's just not good falconry there's yeah. just no reason for it well the, the the biggest analogy and and granted i mean i it's not, i'm not going to sit here and claim that i've flown you know 100 kestrels because i haven't and me neither but you know <laughs> but i also um you know don't need to uh see somebody stick their hand on a on a stove and burn the crap out of their hand to know that I probably shouldn't do that either. You know, but I've, I've seen enough guys and, you know, fly ISs and stuff that have the same opinion. And, um, I mean, it's not to say they wouldn't necessarily do an IS again necessarily or whatever, but they all kind of come to the same consensus that there's very little that you can do. If, if anything that you can do with an imprint that you can't do with a passenger. And let me, let me say, so, so, so Jennifer Colson, who was my, sort of Kestrel mentor first, um, had a, had an imprinted, uh, IS Kestrel at, at the time that uh, was a great, uh, car hawk and, and caught lots of birds. And, and, and Jennifer, uh, actually makes an argument for some, uh, and I think, I think her argument goes something like, um, it has, it, you know, it has no preconceived notions about what might be a good way to hunt. And mm-hmm. therefore, if you have some situation that uh, that maybe a passage bird had never uh, experienced, or or might be, for example, one of the places that they used to hunt was uh, had had tall trees around it, and and passage birds generally uh, don't like to fly around a you know a hard wood edge because mm-hmm. uh, they get eaten by Cooper's hawks. Right. Yeah. Perfect. But but an IS, you know, who may not have had that experience, uh, you know, might and you had that spot and you knew that was going to be a good spot. Mm-hmm. So I think there, you know, I think there there are arguments to be made, but on 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 general principle, yeah. Um, I, I just there's just no yeah. advantage to it well and then you know going back to that specific point too, the double-edged sword there is the imprint also doesn't have the predator awareness so if it you know it, it doesn't really know that it even should be looking out right for something that's going to eat it right. potentially i and, think they, you know, they they figured they do figure that out in in time and in, i think in time there's right <laughs> i mean there is late by that time but <laughs> they're in a cooper's hawk that can't catch a kestrel oh sure either yeah, so yeah. and i you know it is i can tell you as a matter of fact uh it is it is no 
protection from Cooper's Hawks that you're a passenger or haggard uh, kestrel. And uh, so I've, I've had two personal experiences where coops have come in. One took, took it off the fist, basically. Yeah, same same with me. Yeah, yeah. And, and one took it as it was coming back to the car. Mm-hmm. Uh, in both cases, and I think in your case too, and yeah, I tell same. everybody the same thing. I just no run, more than run, an inch away from my hand. You, you run after them, though, yelling and screaming, because yeah. Cooper's Hawk will drop Oh, I, I got him to drop. Right, right. Yeah. And uh, so, but, they, and I've talked to several people that have had exactly the same, which is sort yeah. of a weird thing to know. But Yeah, it, well, I mean, um, and I've, I've known guys that, um, that use air horns and stuff too. Right. You know, um, it just... The, the the key is though, is, I mean, nothing else. You just kind of hope that that coop is also a, a male too that can't get up and away, you know, as fast as maybe a female could, you know, with it because of the weight and everything else. Right. I, the one that, that that swooped in and got mine, fortunately, was was a male. He wasn't quite big enough to to get the the air and get off off the ground super quick and everything. So I was able to actually catch up, run, you know, and yep. catch up yep. not too far behind, and you know, which which, which helped with the the yelling and. Right. screaming like a madman <laughs> right right i mean that's one you know if it if it if a if a harris hawk catches a kestrel there's no yelling and screaming yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it, it's, it's just going it's gonna down. it's gonna go up and stare at you while right. it while, while it plucks all the feathers right. off right. And, and so <laughs> um well i mean the other thing about a cooper's hawk too and and uh and and anybody who's flown a cooper's hawk knows this they they when they catch something it's it's they just stand on it and mm-hmm. it's it's perfectly alive uh typically they pluck them naked before they even break in mm. and so you uh and, and i've got a pretty you know macabre uh story about this we were trapping merlins in florida on the beach and um we uh you know when you're when you're trapping merlins of course you're trapping during migration so there's cooper's hawks and kestrels and, and harriers and everything else going going over too and mm-hmm. uh and we had this horrific experience of watching a coop catch a kestrel and spiral down out of the sky with it and land in the palmettos where we could not reach them and you know, I guess you could argue you shouldn't. It's happening in nature, and that's what happens. But right. we had we were close enough. We had to listen to that kestrel scream for about uh, an hour and a half. And that, that it is a heartbreaking little trill too, man. Yep. It, and we, I mean, it's you know, you you hear it once, and you know what's going on. Yep. And uh, and that yep. kestrel, I guarantee you, was plucked naked before I'm, before I'm, before it. bite one uh, from that Cooper's hawk, and you could have walked in at any time. Uh, and uh, you know, again, we, we physically could not get there, uh, or we probably all would have, but. Uh, but at any rate, illustrates terrible things happen to kestrels around Cooper's Hawks. <laughs> well, um, I mean, unfortunately, with the way uh, things work in the world, if you're smaller than everything else, typically you get eaten more. You get eaten by the next big guy. Yeah. Yep. Well, cool. I mean, thanks for thanks for sharing your viewpoint on that, because if, if there is people that, that are just starting to get interested in, in, in kestrels, and, and I, I'm sure you've noticed this too, probably, but that that's the biggest that's usually the first question that's asked on a Facebook page or a group or a forum or, or whatever is, all right, thoughts of imprint versus passage versus hag go. Right. And next right. thing you know, you're 236 comments later. <laughs> and, right. right. And, um, you know, just, uh, there's this big debate and stuff. And, you know, I mean, I've, I, I've seen amazing kestrels of both, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, and the only thing that I've noticed that, you know, obviously an imprint may right off the bat after you, you enter it and stuff, um, maybe prone to, to, to take a little bit bigger game, you know, maybe a little quicker. I'm not sure. I I, I don't know that that, that's true. I mean, so they can catch, uh, the grackles, boat tail grackles. Yeah. Um, and, and these are, you know, like relatively giant, bro. It's basically a, you know, broad wing talk on a jackrabbit. Mm -hmm. And, um, and and they do that handily, and um, and I'm not sure that an IS is you know that much more eager to go after it than anything else. I mean, a, a passage bird that that expects to, to kill a starling, 
will will go bind to stuff. Like I said, I've seen seen both ways as well, but I mean, that, that is the one thing just in my personal experience so far. Well, it you, could may not, be. you may may not even want them to go after, but well, you know. it's I mean, then you got to you know, like you get a scenario with the young Harris hawk where. You know, you spend the first three weeks in the field trying to keep it from, you know, catching every coyote and, and, and dog and horse and whatever else just because it thinks it can. Yeah. Um, yeah. So. Uh, so, yeah, no, I, I, I grant you there's some of that. Um, yeah. But I, but again. But once again, a, 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 it's well established that a, that a passage kestrel can also catch a grackle right, if it really wants right, to. Right. And it, you can you, know. you can let it go. Right. Uh, right. It, yep. And it's. Yep. You know, so it's I think there's as a practical matter, it's. It's it's a pretty settled issue for me. I think it's telling that generally that that thread in the in the internet starts uh, sometime around April, yeah. when, when when you know when they have released their last bird and they're and they're looking at doldrums over the course. Yep. They like you know and they know where a nest box is, mm-hmm. and they're like, ah, I think I could really good get one started. And I'm like, well, no doubt you could, but then you yeah. be stuck with it. Yeah. Uh, so so anyway. I mean, I, thanks thanks for sharing that. I'm I didn't mean to digress too far on that topic, but. Do you even remember what we were talking about us a minute ago before I told you to expound or asked well, you to Well, we were talking about, uh, you know, what interested me in kestrels. That's, and, that's right. Yep. And, and getting into it. Yep. Um, but I, just to finish that story, um, went on from Sally, who, who I lost, who, who uh, a bunch of crows chased her off. Uh-huh. And uh, I've never flown with, with telemetry. was not even really a technically possible option when I was flying, mm-hmm. uh, mostly. It is now, and, and I know people who have done it, and I don't... Uh, I certainly would not dissuade you from flying with the telemetry if you if you could, but um, but I didn't and hadn't and uh, and lost her with a bunch of crows chasing her off, which which anybody who flies a Kestrel knows that that could happen any day. And yeah. so, um, <laughs> but but then I had a series of passage and, and haggard birds uh, that were all uh, because I knew better how to how to fly them and 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 knew better what the you know hunting looked like. Uh, you know, were sort of progressively better and better birds and. Um, and so what I ended up thinking of having done myself is a sort of fellowship, you know, so for about 10 years I flew, I flew kestrels every year. Mm-hmm. Um, and we tried to fly them every different way we could. We f- flew them at flocks of stuff. We flew them at, you know, roosting sparrows. We flew them over dogs. We flew them in a cast. We mm-hmm. flew, um, you know, we, we flew every type of quarry we thought we, they could catch. We, um, you know, we, we would travel with them, um, try them in different areas. And um, and basically just treated them like you know your 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 best falconry bird, mm-hmm. which which they stand up to, and 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 can be, um, and can be sufficient for a falconer just to have a kestrel and catch you know over hundred head a season no problem sure have a great time you know not have it die you know not have really any like serious problem with its weight control or or husbandry, um, and uh, so that actually puts it in a realm of you know practical falconry bird that. Um, that's, you know, red-tailed hawk, uh, you know, Harris hawk, uh, mm-hmm. you, you, peregrine falcon. I mean, there's some, some, some heavy hitters in this group of birds that are A, you know, great hunters, B, thrive in captivity, um, you know, and, and, and C, you know, are partners with you. We're, meet you halfway uh, at your sport. It's hard to find another type of, of falconry bird that is such um, a good all-around combination of, of manageability, um, you know, potential skill level and just, just, just overall, just easy to take care of in general, you know, it can be basically become, you know, another aspect of your house furniture, you know, right, <laughs> you, right. you know, just, it, it can, it can become, um, you know, as, as close to, um, you know, that aspect of things as, as you would really care to let it in, in falconry. But 
with, with all the experience um, that you that you've had, and obviously, then with it, uh, what what by far has been your your favorite way to hunt? Then is it still mainly just the typical way, or just you know? Well, the, my the, my f- favorite way would be on house sparrows, yeah. and um and and I and I and I'll cite you an area, a specific place that we had to hunt that um that I, I wouldn't say is rare. It would be rare here in, in Baton Rouge. We actually don't have big flocks of house sparrows here in Baton Rouge, and mm-hmm. a lot of parts of the country where we assume you have big flocks of house sparrows you don't um but uh but where i was living in north florida we would actually travel about an hour and a half uh to get to one spot uh to hunt house sparrows with with the kestrels and um it sounds crazy except this spot was fantastic and it was in the middle of an old world war ii airfield um (laughs) and so you drove into it and we would fly the merlins you know we had merlins with us too we fly them on the airfield and then in the middle of the airfield was a peanut packing factory <laughs> and the peanut packing factory, uh, which had, I mean, it was like in the lawn, you know, just hundreds and hundreds of acres of open lawn around this peanut packing factory, uh, that had uh, shrubbery all around it. And so it had this tremendous, uh, native, uh, you know, it's absolutely loaded, loaded with house sparrows <laughs> and they wouldn't leave. And so it was really this perfect uh, storm of, of hawkability for house sparrows and kestrels. And you literally, you'd get out of the car, you'd throw the kestrel up on the roof, you start walking and you, you hit the bushes as you're going down and, and dozens and dozens of sparrows come out and they don't take off for the hills. They go around the corner and pile right. back they in. just come right back right, in. Yeah. Right. And so house sparrows are great flyers and house sparrows will... Um, not always put in. If they're if there's a kestrel behind them, they'll sky out because they you know they can um, you know sometimes outfly a kestrel. They're, they're they're pretty well matched American kestrel and house sparrow. And hmm. Just like all hawks, you know uh, to be successful, the hawk has to have a little bit of an advantage. It either you know it's either coming from a high position or it's got a close slip or it's you know there is sure. some advantage. Even 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 with a hawk that's a faster than the quarry, you still need you know on 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 average for 100 kills, most of those kills happen with some advantage to the hawk. Well, sure, right, so definitely. Um, so this was a place where the sparrows had to put back in and that makes them a great quarry and, and any, you know, bird that gets up and puts back in is the kind of quarry that you, that you want to hunt with a, with a hawk. And so, you know, while we, and I I will say this, we would drive around the airfield to hunt out the window and catch two or three starlings. Mm -hmm. And then we would stop in at the, (laughs) at the peanut plant and spend the rest of the afternoon hunting house sparrows. And, um, and 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 they're very good at that, and it's it's just as engaging and as fun and as successful as hawking rabbits with a red tail. I mean, it's it's a, it was the same same experience. If I don't have to worry about filling the freezer, especially next time around, I really think the next time I fly a kestrel, will we'll, I really want to try and, and and do something more like that. As I've told you before, as the only problem I've had, is obviously, is just you get a passenger, even a hag or or whatever. So, breaking them of the whole carrying thing you know like, well you got to do anti-carrying training yeah yeah it's, I know. It's, 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 a it's, it's tough <clears throat> it's tough i know it's just and that, that's that's the thing is is i really haven't um really haven't hunted that way before so i haven't really tried to enforce the anti-carrying right you know right. methods before that being said the next the next go around if, if i do decide to go that route it's it's going to be kind of some a little bit of it might be some cool uncharted territory you know because it's 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 it would be something knew that I really haven't tried to, you know, really enforce or really train, but that seems like a blast, especially, uh, especially if there's a bunch of, uh, a bunch of them and, you know, like the, the, the pallet method and everything yep. else that you discuss yep. in your book and everything. Mm-hmm. I, I, I don't, I don't want to just, you know, bomb starlings 
all the time. Right. As much fun as well, that it, is. It's, but. it's a it's something in their toolkit that that you cannot afford to 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 uh, not take advantage of when yeah. it's convenient. Right. Um, they are really good at it. It's really practical. It's a it, you know it, it it there's a lot of good reasons to do that. Sure. Uh, but it sh- should be you know known and 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 excited. People should be excited about the prospect that that's not all you have to do. Um, you know, I would say that that almost for every other hawk, uh, you know, car hawking sh- should be at some point in your career, you know, uh, sort of sport of last resort. Uh, <laughs> but I don't say that about kestrels, though, because kestrels really are sort of uniquely yeah, uh, yeah. G- good at it. And mm-hmm. um, and the fact that uh, that. You know, you are dealing with the, you know, sort of more physically limited. It is not a Merlin. You know, exactly. Kestrel is not a Merlin. It's, it's not a Sharpshin. Not talk. a fast bird. It's not a, it's not a especially fast <laughs> yeah. bird. Uh, for all their guts and, f- mm-hmm. and for the fact that they, you know, that they that they can fly, mm-hmm. uh, it is not a Sharpshin talk. Right. And so, um, and so you really, you know, can't afford to, like, just drop off uh, something hugely successful that they can do. Yeah. But, you know, on House Sparrows, uh, that is a real deal, hawking, and it's a lot of fun. And the anti-carrying, I can tell you, is, is not that big a deal. Oh, I'm sure it's not. It's just something that I've, you know. Well, that's pers- another thing that that we everybody talks about and everybody's afraid of, but very few people have actually, you know, gone ahead and tried to do it over multiple birds, and they're like, oh, you know what? Uh, so, well, I can tell you, some some kestrels you and some hawks of, of every type are going to carry, sure, and, and you're you're not going to stop them from doing that. But typically, whenever they're not quite as hungry, awesome. well, there's uh, that that's that's true too. Yeah. Um, but then there's some that uh, you know you couldn't carry if you you know, if you ran up to them sure. and, uh, and then, and then there's of course training them to not carry when you run up to them, which is exactly what you do. Right. Um, and so that method is, uh, again, Tom and Jen, uh, taught me how to do that. They, uh, would typically fly their Merlins, um, which they f- flew for years and years. And Merlins are, are, uh, you know, w- w- well known to, to, to carry in their case, they're going off to cash it and come back and hunt with you. Um, but, you know, it's uh, it, it can be tricky to try to take anything from them, mm-hmm. but there. But Tom and Jen flew Marlins for years. It would just let you run up on them and scoop them up off the ground, and they did sure. that by running up on them and scooping them up off the ground <laughs> a bunch of times in training, yeah. which is you know similar to what you do with a kestrel. So, what have been your your other uh, your favorite types of um, birds to fly, and which will you, will you never do again? And <laughs> I mean, what what what's uh, I, I can answer both those questions yeah. pretty easily. Um, so I. You know, I've, I've flown quite a few kestrels and spent some time, years, uh, sort of dedicating myself to that. But uh, around that have been a lot of Harris hawks. Um, I've had odds and ends of weird stuff. Like I've flown several Broadwing talks and uh, had one that I flew out the car window that caught 40 birds. You know, met my minimum standard of, <laughs> of, of having flown that particular hawk. Um, uh, you know, raised some red-shouldered hawks. I've had uh, and lost quickly a couple of Merlins. Um uh, flew a Cooper's Hawk uh, that flew well and, until it died in, in, in December uh, of the year, um, uh, but it caught you know it caught 122 head uh, before, but that was before uh, trying to do the same thing with a male Harris Hawk, and uh, and so now I'm a huge uh, advocate uh, and and evangelist uh, for the male Harris Hawk in falconry, which. You know, which should surprise nobody. Uh, it's you know, it's one of the most successful birds uh, in in the world. Versatile, versatile. versatile. I mean, it is the most versatile male hair sock, and 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 I'll go toe to toe with anybody. And I love it. I know it's a it's a 
It's a Reddit. It's a, it's a bone of contention. It's with a, a lot bone of contention. You know what is the most especially those, right. those goss hot guys? Yeah, of course, yeah, yeah. no, those guys, I, right? <laughs> yeah. So we can we'll have a you know we can we can look at the data. Uh, we can go, we can go hunting on any given day in any given field. Um, but my, my feeling is uh, that you know whether or not it is the most versatile bird, it is it is plenty versatile um, to the extent that you know you catch sparrow, sparrow, you know swamp rabbit. Uh, sparrow, jackrabbit, starling, sparrow, blackbird, uh, all in a hunt, and um, and you know one after the other, and um, so it's a you know it's a matter of what do you want to hunt, what what you know what do you like to hunt, uh, you know you've got a partner with you that that will do that. So so I would say that that now I've, I've had probably more male Harris hawks and more kestrels than anything else uh, combined. Mm-hmm. Uh, red tails, of course, which I, which I love and, you know, like a passage red tail is a fantastic, uh, crusher and, uh, and a a great bird in its own right. The reason why everybody gets started off on it for the most part. Right. And, and and a lot of people come back to them. And I think, and I think just like a Kestrel, there's, you know, there's a whole lot more to be done with them and there's a lot being done with them now. Um, you know, you look at the slope soaring guys in California. Oh, it's awesome. It's all, it's unbelievable. Um, so, so there's all of that, um. But but for me it'll be a male Harris hawk uh, just because uh, here in Southeast Louisiana it's it is you know the most versatile thing that we could fly mm-hmm. uh, it is it, it does catch what we have here um, and uh, and I like them uh, you know I, I enjoy them and you know I stopped flying kestrels when my children were born uh, because my wife was not too keen about having a hawk in the house uh-huh. and and kestrels of course the indoor bird. Um, and so from that moment on, there was a male Harris hawk in the backyard or, or, or not. And, um, and while I'd had them before, I had never really felt like, well, this was the bird I got. And this bird has to do everything now because now I, I don't have kestrels now. So it's got to be my bird hunter. It's, you mm-hmm. know, and I had had experiences with, uh, with, uh, you know, sharp shin briefly, uh, Cooper's hawk, uh, I guess in the end, it was a disaster, uh, in the middle, it was certainly successful, although mm-hmm. not a whole lot of fun. Um, yeah. <laughs> and a male Harris hawk catches exactly the same quarry, exactly the same species under the same circumstances in the same distance. Um, there is no difference. Plus, uh, you know, big swamp rabbits, plus jackrabbits, you know, plus, uh, you know, hunting with your dog, plus hunting with other hawks, plus uh, <laughs> the, the occasional real plus the occasional, Right. Um, but, I, you know, just like there's no comparison there. So yeah. uh, for me. Uh, again, to you know, start another war with the exhibitor people. Um, <laughs> I have that war every weekend of of every uh, of, of pretty much every week of every hunting season. Yeah, much. and it's, I think you know if you're not an advocate for the type of hawk that you really love, you're not a good falconer. You got you got to be able to go go to war with somebody. All, all that being said, deep down inside, everybody usually acknowledges all the said facts or whatever, but at the same time you can't avoid having your your fun digs at each other either oh so. no that's all it's all part of it that's all you know it's all it's all fun and uh and i think that's you know that's not a point that should be lost is that you know whatever you do whatever you choose you should be having fun yeah, if you're not having fun there's no point in there's doing no it. there's no point in doing it and, and that you know there is there's something to be said for challenging yourself there's something to be said for doing something that you haven't done or, or something that you know to be difficult uh, but at the end of the day, if you don't enjoy doing that, if you're not successful at it by your own definition, at least no point, there's no point. Yeah. There's no point. What, what's the next thing that you were discussing as far as, I mean, obviously you've written, um, you've written your main book, you know, American Kestrels and, and Modern Falconry and stuff. Like what, what's, 
what's kind of the the next endeavor you want to or, or or do you even want to have a, a, a quote-unquote next endeavor with with a book do you feel like there's more that you have um to share with people yeah well i appreciate that um and i hope the answer is yes uh you know as a, <laughs> as a blanket statement um and I do think there's another there's another book. Um, it'd be a, sh- a short one, probably, as, as, as I'm thinking of it now. But there are a lot of good short falconry books. Um, mm-hmm. Some of my favorites are, are little thin volumes. Um, but 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 the one I have in mind, um, if the Kestrel book was sort of a how-to, and the and the journal was more of a introspective look at you know why I do what I do here and mm-hmm. and how it affects my family, et cetera. Um, this one would be. Uh, sort of the the guidebook uh, to to you know the, sort of the what I think of as like the f- five or six major categories of 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 in, of import in falconry, like the things that you have to yeah. think about. And these are these are like weight control. It's um, it's abundance of game. It's mm-hmm. you know it's the it's the right hawk f- for for the right place. Um, it's uh, you know, there, there. You, you can, you can. I, I do. I'll, I'm sure we could have this discussion, and we could have an argument with 100 falconers and have 500 different, you know, uh, lists of what those elements of falconry are. But, sure. But for me, if if a person calls, and they start telling me their story about, hey, this hawk, and and it does this, and it doesn't quite do this, and I think that it's not quite doing this. I'm already thinking about, you know, I've already narrowed my, my answer it's like down. there's number three. Yes, right. There's number five. There's a, <laughs> it's, it, and it's not infinite. It's just not infinite. And it will, it will be one of those, you know, one of those things. And so, uh, you know, so, so sort of wrapped up in that in my head, at least, uh, are, you know, this, 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 this not large number of, of elements of falconry, whatever those are, that are, that are going to be universal across any type of hawking that you want to do, if you want it to be successful, and then a definition of success, which which would be the sort of the key to this book, uh, would be you know how do you define success? And you would think that every falconry book is about in some way successful falconry, and that is, I mean, if you've read more than two falconry books, you know that's not the case. Uh, you know the vast majority of efforts that we make as falconers to sort of relate what we do in falconry ends up being you know sort of a broad based look at, at at what types of hawks there are and sort of a you know. Uh, mansplaining version of, uh, of you know of what you do with them, and um, and then maybe a literature review. So so in other words, you've you've um, you've already touched on the instruction, and then you've also already touched on the uh, introspection. Now you you're you're kind of wanting to share more philosophy. In other words, or uh, another, just just a point a different maybe, point of view on philosophy. It, yes, there'd be some you know like f- philosophical aspect, not to not to elevate you know the idea as, as some you know, thing that, that now I can't write because I can, I'm not capable of writing it. <laughs> yeah. uh, but, uh, but it would be more of, of a universalist approach. In gotcha. other words, you know, falconry is not, isn't, you know, like, like I say, it's not rocket science, although there are rocket scientists who do it and you can apply rocket science to it. Um, and uh, we got a lot of examples of that today. Uh, but, but there are elemental principles that will apply to all types of falconry. And, and if your goal is successful falconry, if your goal is to catch something with that hawk, whatever it is, wherever you are, whoever you are, um, then, then those, those are about five. There's about five or six things you need to think about, and, and we don't write them down. Mm-hmm. And, so, and so it would be a little bit of um, you know, me thinking about how I answer those questions and how I ask those questions of myself when, I, when I'm having trouble with a hawk when i'm can't figure something out well it's you know like i 
it is not some crazy answer out of the blue. It is one of it is one of very few elements of falconry that 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 are that are applying, or I'm not applying correctly, or uh, or I'm not meeting you know the standard uh, for and uh, and it's really just sort of a practical application of like uh, you know are are you a practical person? Do, do you know that you know you need a lot of game like to catch game? Right. Uh, I mean, these are sort of the fundamental boil boil it down to to what are the what's the real problem? Yeah. And the real problem might be you don't have enough game. Yeah. Real problem you don't you don't have enough slips. Right. Um, you don't know how to hunt. Right. Yeah. Uh, right kind of bird for those that quarry. Right. And, and right. And and why? And 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 then of course you can you know you can make a longer book out of that. But but if but if my standard is a phone call, if my standard is what do I tell a guy uh, who's calling me and I don't know him and he doesn't know me, but I know that problem uh, that he has and I think mm-hmm. I could fix it, and I don't think it's rocket science. I think it's a it's a pretty simple problem that he's overlooking. Yeah. So so there's that. Uh, but in this bigger idea of you know the the philosophy the philosophical part of it, I think would qualify as a good philosophical consideration is what is success is like how do you define success and mm-hmm. um yeah it's just like you know the, the 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 person that um hasn't ever caught anything hasn't flown a bird is just trying to get that apprenticeship you know their their version of success might be i just want to catch i just want to catch one head of game and before right. that it might just even be like i just want to be able to successfully get this bird to come back to me or it might be you know and, and it right. might you know for some people it might be you know um it might change, you know. Well, that, yeah. So, so, and you should, you should move the goalposts, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah, you should, sure. as you, as you should move. And, 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 and this is not, you know, setting up some elaborate um, excuse for falconers who don't want to succeed, right? Like mm-hmm. this, like the goal of this pursuit would not be to uh, define success in such a way that it has no meaning. Right. That you know, like, uh, like any answer is true. No, in fact, it's exactly the opposite. I've got um, sort of a system that I apply to my own falconry, whether I'm flying a kestrel or a hare hawk or a cooper's hawk or a red tail. Um, that allows me to compare, you know, one bird to another, one season to another, mm-hmm. one quarry to another, right. where I can say, hey, look, was I successful at this? What am I? Am I doing it right? Like, am I meeting some minimal standard? Mm-hmm. Or you can look at it and say, it just didn't seem right. It, it didn't seem right. right. And here's and then I right. and then I start to you know deconstruct that. Well, which which of the five or six problems uh, was I having with that bird? Of course, now you know the more experienced in falconry you get, you. You have more success, not just because you get that much better at it, because you, but you, because you avoid things that you know don't work. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so you know a guy who's been around for a long time can really look good uh, just by avoiding a bunch of the mistakes that you know that he's made. Yep. And uh, <laughs> so I definitely I definitely see that as a benefit of been around for a while. Yeah. Meanwhile, you've got that that poor apprentice that's the the first time free flying their bird ever in front of about. I don't know, five or six experienced falconers who they know right. as soon as they go off it, they're going to have to retrap their, their fat bird and stuff. And they know that those five or six, uh, you know, totally non-judgmental falconers are having, you know, talking about all their theories as to, as to why the bird. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And then there's the experienced falconer has the same experience. <laughs> and then his buddies are still talking about him. And we've so all true. been there, too. Yeah, it's so true. Well. I mean, I really appreciate you having me down this weekend. It was it was fun hanging with you and uh, and the Colsons and um, eating your you first know, crawfish. Oh, my first crawfish. Yeah. Oh, crawfish is delicious. There you go. Yeah, crawfish boy. Heard man. it here it's first. A, yeah, legit. Yeah. Uh, the legit <laughs> New Orleans crawfish boy yeah. is awesome. Um, but I mean, I appreciate the hospitality and um, you know for taking the time and stuff. And I'm sure that everybody listening is is as well. So. Um, 
any uh, anything that you want to just kind of tease or um, you know give people a, a heads up about? There was a little birdie that was whispering something in my ear about the possibility of a, of a new uh, book edition coming out sometime soon or something like that. Yeah. Uh, so we we we're, we're always looking to uh, to re-release the Kestrel book. It gets reprinted on a regular basis, which I'm happy to say and uh, and, and proud of and glad glad for. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that uh, that expansion of that is is necessary at this point. Mm-hmm. And so, um, so yeah. So I think the little bird is right. I think <laughs> we need to uh, we need to expand the format a little bit. We need to bring in some people uh, to to help and uh, and sort of bring it up to date. Because I think you know, and I and I reread it uh, a little while ago, and it you know for what it is, it's short and um, short, sweet, and to the point. Yes, uh, and it still holds true. Uh, but there's more. There's more. Falconers are doing more now uh, than I d- ever did. Mm-hmm. Um, they're thinking about things that I wasn't thinking about uh, mm-hmm. that I couldn't have even imagined. And uh, and so a lot of that needs to be brought in. Uh, and I look forward to doing that. Maybe we'll work together on that. Cool. That'd be awesome, man. I, anything I can ever be a part of to help uh, to help you out and anything, just let me know. And and um, yeah, I mean, like I said, man, thanks again so much. And uh, you bet. Thank you. Yeah. Hopefully, yeah, uh, hopefully it. we'll we'll Let's do, do this it again. again. Yeah, for sure. All well, right. I'm sure we will. Thanks, man. All right. Thank you guys so much for listening this week, and I hope you enjoyed it. I had a great time making it for you and am greatly appreciative to Matt Mullinex for taking the time for me and for showing all the hospitality. And as always, thank you again so much to the Falconry Fund for making the podcast possible. If you have any donations that you want to make, just please go to falconryfund.org. Any donations are always greatly appreciated because they go a long way towards future endeavors and for making future content for you all. Please subscribe. If you haven't already, to our social media outlets, Facebook, Instagram, etc. And if you ever need to contact us or have any questions, comments, recommendations for guests, just reach us at www.falconryfund.org contact. Or you can always reach us by email at falconryfund at gmail.com and just mention podcast in the subject line. Once again, I am John Munyer. Thank you so much for tuning in again this week. And don't forget to tune in next week because we definitely have lots of cool new guests lined up here for the near future. So everyone be safe until next time. Happy molting. And until then, take care. Thank you so much.